Hello. This week I'm delighted to be joined by Jamie Angus, who left the BBC last July after a stellar career which involved editing the Today programme and Newsnight. He later became director of the World Service, running the teams which produce news in 42 languages to weekly audiences of 500 million around the world. Now, I want to ask him about the recent BBC cuts in the World Service and news, about impartiality in the Gary Lineker affair and about the future funding of the BBC. He's now the Chief Operating Officer at Al Arabiya News Channel in the United Arab Emirates. Al Arabiya, by the way, means the Arab one. So, Jamie Angus, why did you take this job? I mean, the BBC obviously was shredding people at the top level, but uh, I always regarded you as somebody heading for the very top. So why did you take this job? Well, I don't know. I think you um, decide at a point in your career that you've got a sort of final act left in you elsewhere outside the BBC. And it's a really difficult decision because I love the BBC very much and I still love it very much. But I think I felt very drained by a long stint in news and actually... Uh, as we've seen, news is going through another series of quite painful cuts and service reductions. And I, I think having worked through the last round of those with my colleagues in BBC News, I just had to sort of have a long think about whether I really had another round of those in me. And in the end, I decided that um, I was going to go and try and do something completely different. And indeed, here I am. Well, it's quite a change because instead of closing things down, you're opening things up in your new job. You've just launched a new radio service in Saudi Arabia and the wider region this week. What sort of service is that? So it's a news radio station uh, and we're on air on FM uh, already this week in Riyadh and joining shortly in Jeddah and Dammam and will be on air shortly in 15 metros across Saudi Arabia. Uh, and it's a hybrid station. Part of it is the audio feed of the existing TV news channel, but we also have several hours a day of bespoke radio programming at sort of breakfast and drive peak programming time. And it's a reflection, really, of the sort of resilience of, of radio, both in the Saudi market and in the region more generally. So audiences love to consume it. Saudi is a very, very big radio market, and uh, we wanted to have a presence there. But I think also... We're interested to see whether a radio service that originates in Saudi Arabia can attract an audience in the wider region. That's certainly something we're going to be taking a look at. But you're not just starting a new service. You've been putting in fresh services, for example, into earthquake areas. Um, what have you been trying to do there? Well, it's really interesting that Encompass, a radio distributor who also worked with the BBC, are offering free shortwave carriage into northern Syria and Turkey for audiences whose communities have been devastated by the earthquake and so actually we're putting an hour a day of our output on shortwave into that region currently because we know that audiences there sometimes they don't have power and digital services so it's really important there whether still able to receive shortwave radio that they'll be able to get the al arabia radio service there too but the bbc is getting out of shortwave radio isn't it do you think it underestimates the continuing importance of it Yes, and I think actually the BBC still, still thinks it's important in truth. There are parts of the world where the BBC has huge shortwave audiences. I mean, albeit they're declining quite rapidly, but they're still very, very large. And there's no question that were it not for cost pressures, the BBC would have remained with its radio services for at least another three to five years, I think. Now, is it a coincidence that you're doing this, opening up this service at the same time as the BBC's closing BBC Arabic? I mean, in doing that, have they left a big gap in the market? 
I mean, they have. And um, I don't think anyone in the World Service wanted to close BBC Arabic radio and indeed the BBC Persian radio services because there wasn't an audience. There clearly is an audience. And actually, that audience currently has dead air going out on what was the BBC Arabic frequency. And the World Service were left with little other option, I think, but to close those services for cost-saving reasons. It wasn't because they weren't good services with good audiences. So we'd be very interested in the months to come to see whether we can pick up some of that audience in countries which were covered by the uh, what was the BBC's uh, signals. Because now we're making this new station, we'd like to find a very wide audience for it across the region, just as we do with the TV news channels, the two TV news channels, Al Arabiya and Al Hadith, that we um, run. So from where you look now, does it seem as if the BBC World Service is a declining force? You know, whereas in the past we've, people would have automatically turned to it, now it's a declining force? I'm not sure that's right, actually. I think it's very uh, frustrating, certainly for the staff at the World Service and in BBC News more widely, that they've had to make painful service reductions and service closures. And as I said, I don't think anyone would have ideally wanted to close the successful Arabic and Persian radio stations, which I have to say, living in the region, are held in enormously high regard here. And it's really, really striking being here. What a wide range of people were using BBC Arabic radio regularly in the past and are genuinely upset at its at its closure and they include people who complain very regularly about what was on it so i i include in that you know politicians and decision makers from across the region who while bbc arabic radio may have annoyed the hell out of them on occasion actually had a deep deep respect for it and are baffled and disappointed that it's had to close I mean, can your new services in any way replace what the BBC is doing? Because people, as you know, are having a big argument about impartiality uh, in this country. But people will look at your station and say, well, hold on, it can't surely be impartial when it's reporting on internal Saudi matters because the, the, the station is owned and run by a Saudi group. I mean, do you operate to different standards of impartiality now than you did when you were working for the World Service? Well, well, let's see what happens and let's see where audiences vote with their feet and their eyeballs and their ears and their clicks, right? No, but I you'll mean, know, you'll uh, know, Jamie, you'll know if there are no-go areas. Are there no-go areas that you face in your new job you didn't face in your old one? Well, it's certainly true that um, the strict impartiality guidelines that are imposed and rightly on the BBC are to do with the way that the BBC is funded. The BBC is a publicly funded PSB, a public broadcaster, and it's funded by a, a, a compulsory levy on on licence fee payers in the UK. Uh, the company I work for now, uh, Al Arabiya, is a privately owned uh, Saudi media group and it clearly doesn't have the same UK impartiality rules that cover it. But that doesn't mean it's not trusted by audiences. And I think we are, you know, we're the lead news provider in Saudi Arabia and we're at least third in every other major news market across the GCC and the wider region. So audiences understand that they can trust what they receive from Al Arabiya and the company which is celebrating its 20th anniversary on air this month are very proud of what they've achieved because it was set up, in fact, to provide uh, in Independent and you know, trusted news about the region for our audiences in Arabic um, on television, of course, initially. So they can trust what they hear, but they might not hear some things. I mean, to put it bluntly, you're not likely to launch an investigation into the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, are you? Um, uh, that wouldn't be something you would do. Whereas, you know, if you do report something, we can trust that, but there will be gaps. I think audiences, one of the things I've kind of learned about being based out here is that audiences are actually 
pretty discerning and pretty savvy Arabic net language news audiences about selecting where they get their information from. And they typically consume across a number of different providers, including, of course, the BBC, BBC Arabic TV news and the BBC Arabic online news, as well as, for example, Arabia or some other Arabic providers. So it's a kind of part of the world where audiences necessarily have different expectations and they understand the models by which news is provided in this market. So people are comfortable with what they choose and they're smart and savvy about what they're getting. Uh, What you seem to be suggesting to me is there is still room for the World Service alongside you, that actually it needn't be an either or. I agree. And I think the BBC World Service staff, when they're on talking to you, and I would have said this when I was the World Service director, are always very comfortable that the BBC World Service is often the second source of information for many people, naturally, because they will obviously, and in the main, choose a national source of news from their national market as their very first choice. But they really like to inform themselves by using the BBC as a, a second and comparative source of information. And the World Service is really comfortable with that. It's a really good place for them to be, bluntly, whether that's for audiences in English or audiences in other languages. So, yes, I, I absolutely imagine that audiences here will continue to use BBC Arabic services online and BBC Arabic television. But as you know better than I do, the last uh, few months, last few years of World Service, you've been looking at cuts, you've been trying to uh, uh, move, or rather looking and having to say, well, short, we would probably have to go. But the World Service has got an additional £20 million in funding, only about 10 days ago, for the World Service, to ensure for the next two years, so the government says, it continue, can continue to provide 42 vital language services. But if you were still in charge of the World Service, would you be having to face or plan for cuts beyond that period? Well, the government funding that was announced, and I only saw this very recently like you, I think was for the next two years. And there is a very real pressure on the BBC's budgets beyond two years and going on into the future worth just taking a step back and reminding ourselves why the World Service is under these considerable cost pressures. At the start of the last BBC Charter review, the BBC promised to spend at least £254 million a year of licence fee money on the BBC World Service. But of course, seven or eight years ago, whenever that was, £254 million was a significantly smaller chunk of the overall BBC budget than it is now. And that is because the overall cost pressures on the licence fee, which have been exacerbated by the two years of cash flat funding, i.e. funding only at the level of inflation, when inflation in the industry and other cost pressures on the BBC are much higher than that. So we can see that there's been a real squeeze on the BBC's funding overall. And of course, Tim and his team have been having to make really difficult choices about what they protect and what has to go. And those, the world service is now not immune from those uh, choices and they are very very difficult choices well i think the bbc says in the last 10 years the value of the license fee has gone down effectively by 30 percent that's 30 percent coming out of the bbc's purchasing power at a time obviously when others are expanding and uh, the future looks extremely difficult but uh, at least this puts it beyond two years puts it just just on or just beyond the next election I think there's a reasonable question to ask about to what extent the BBC should continue to fund services, including the foreign language services, the non-English language services, I should say, which the licence fee paying audience broadly can't receive or if they could receive it can't understand in many cases. And to what extent those services should be funded by the government as part of uh, the kind of UK uh, influence uh, and soft power, to use a phrase, 
uh, operation and to what extent they should be funded by the license fee payer. Now, you'll recall people who've paid very close attention to this will remember that the language services used to be funded entirely by the government before about 2014, and then that changed. And at one point, they were funded wholly by the license fee, and now they're funded by a combination of the license fee and the government. I think the difficulty we're in is that even looking in from the outside, the kind of cost of living pressures in the UK and the pressures on the UK tax revenues are just very, very high. And politically, it's a very difficult decision to increase further the amount of tax revenue being spent on the BBC World Service, even though personally, I would advocate that it is excellent value in terms of the UK's soft power and therefore good value to UK audiences. And certainly when I was World Service Director, that was the basis on which we argued for World Service funding was that it was disproportionately money well spent because the services it provides are bluntly, when you put them next to the cost of an aircraft carrier or a nuclear submarine, negligible. But the benefits are pretty vast and and profound and build on a very, very long track record in the case of BBC Arabic Radio over 80 years of service to audiences. And once the value that's built up in those services is lost, it's quite hard to build up again from scratch. And that's a good argument for sort of continuing to maintain world service funding uh, at the level it is or to grow it um, over time. And you would think that in the end, although uh, I obviously have reservations, it would be better if we went back to a system when it was wholly funded by government. Well, I think that would be easier on the BBC. I mean, I think my sort of ideal vision of it had always been that there is a strong case for international services in English to be funded by the licence fee because the licence fee payer can consume them if they wanted to. And with, without in any way reducing the status of the language services because, of course, the reach of the World Service depends in enormous measure on those language services and they are vital. You know, if you think of services like BBC Burmese or the BBC Farsi services for Iran, they are absolutely vital. But it's probably more appropriate at a time of very, very constrained BBC funding that a larger proportion, if not all of them, are funded by the government. But I acknowledge, as I said before, that is a very different, difficult argument to land when we're in the, the public spending crunch that we are currently in. Yeah, and you refer to aircraft carriers, uh, which seem to be perpetually be re- refitted and refitted and refitted, and billions are being spent on um, hardware that is not yet on the battlefield or at sea. But uh, setting that one aside, also your last job, I think, uh, was the former senior news controller for BBC News. And obviously in that job, you were involved in planning or thinking through the idea of combining the two news channels into one. Uh, we're not yet there yet. We, we expect this to be launched, what, in a month's time or so. Do you think there was any alternative for news but to combine those two channels? I think personally, given the scale of savings that are required, it's the right decision. Though I don't think it's a decision anyone took with great pleasure because colleagues who've worked on the UK facing news channels since its launch have built up really significant and loyal audiences. I think what the management are proposing now is to have a single channel that is predominantly globally news focused because, of course, BBC World News' global audience is 100 million people a month. It's the BBC's most watched channel and therefore of enormous importance. But they feel, and I certainly felt when I did some work on this, that it was possible to maintain a, a kind of 
UK-facing news channel service that can, if you like, sort of branch off from the main globally aligned channel. That means when there are big breaking news stories in the UK or other stories that really wouldn't be appropriate for a global audience, that there is some capacity for for a separate stream, if you like, of the channel that covers that. Are you suggesting there's something like regional opt-outs that, uh, or in this sense, it's a national opt-out, that when there's a story of consuming interest to the domestic TV licence player, but of less importance internationally, it will be possible for the news service to, as you were, opt out and go national as opposed to international on those infrequent occasions. I think that's right, and I, I, I believe that is still the plan, although you'd have to check with current management. But certainly what we were looking at was to have ways in which, for example, if there's breaking news in the UK Parliament, it's very easy to split off a separate feed. It is essentially parliamentary live coverage. And then you just have to work out, we always thought of sort of hypothetical situations when we were modelling this, of of circumstances where you would definitely have to have a separate UK feed. And it was sort of, you know, floods in Yorkshire, huge story uk weather story is a really good example like of enormous interest to uk audiences and bluntly of very little interest to audiences internationally or death of bruce forsyth a huge story for uk audiences but of really very little interest to international audiences so you can sort of game out a few of those different types of scenarios where you would need to opt out a separate feed but i think the management team currently are looking at really at sort of breaking news in the round across both digital platforms and television platforms and kind of working out how to build an organization that can deliver uk breaking news and then worry a bit about how to put it on radio tv and online if you think about it in those terms that's the kind of situation we've ended up at and i think it is doable actually uh, and i think it also ensures that the glory of the bbc's international news gathering including the world service is actually more visible to audiences in the uk on the new channel because one of the great frustrations about working with bbc world news over the years which i've done for at least half my bbc career is that it's not visible in the uk outside the overnight service and one or two other hours and therefore people didn't really understand what it was and how good it was uh, and i think having it continually visible inside the uk as the sustaining continuous news service will actually be a good thing for that reason can i finally turn you to the question of impartiality uh, or rather the linear how shall we call it what did it look like to you? Do you think it's done damage to the BBC um, uh, internationally for its reputation of impartiality? Or are people just slightly baffled that it got to the sort of scale it did? Yeah, it, 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 it at once looked sort of amusingly parochial, but also very serious. And I, like I re- was reading the BBC News app the day that the sort of agreement was reached and the headline says, you know, BBC reaches agreement with Gary Lineker to resume services or something. It was the kind of headline that you just couldn't imagine from a standing start ever reading. But at the same time... No, you I, should have read. The BBC, <laughs> the BBC basically stepped back, and if not 2-0, it was certainly 1-0 to Gary Lineker. But, I mean, do, do you think it's been damaging internationally to the BBC? Um, no. No, actually. I think broadly this is a UK issue and a UK culture wars problem and actually a very pressing problem for the BBC in the UK. I mean, let's be honest, the fact that sports services, which are like a lot of people use those sports services who don't use other BBC services, 
very much. And the fact that those came off air at all was enormously damaging for the BBC. And the fact that the editorial guidelines are now going to have to be redrawn again is also damaging for the BBC. And it is a pressing domestic issue. But I think internationally, no, people understand what the story was about. But I didn't think think it got a huge amount of salience and traction over here. But beneath it all, of course, is... um this statement by the Director General when he came into um, into office that impartiality was going to be at the centre of what he did and statements by the Chairman which suggested the BBC had a problem with impartiality. Well, there you are, you're a former editor of Today and so on. Um, did you think you had a problem with impartiality or the BBC had one? Um, uh, it's got to remain impartial. It's got to constantly re- reassess what that means. But the clear assumption of the governing party is... It leans, BBC leans to the left. Let's be honest that impartiality is a state of grace. It's something we struggle to attain all the time and it's not a sort of, uh, it's, it's not a sort of tick box exercise. But it is important uh, and it's important for audience trust in the BBC. And I perhaps unfashionably on Twitter take the view that Tim was right to ask Gary Lineker to come off air. Tim, when he came in as Director General, set a series of guidelines for people who aren't news employees but are part of the public face of the BBC. And it seemed to me as a now outside observer that what Gary Lineker tweeted uh, about the political discussion around refugees in the UK broke those guidelines. And I further think that a lot of BBC staff, particularly in BBC News, but across the BBC, probably felt the same because you have to remember they are being asked to give up a huge amount of their own personal freedom. They are being as told, particularly journalists, that they cannot tweet at all about current events, that they cannot attend gay pride marches, that they cannot tweet about Black Lives Matter, they cannot tweet about uh, aspects of their own identity that they feel deeply passionately about. And the BBC News staff are sticking to those rules very broadly and it is very difficult for them to see one of the BBC's highest paid stars, but more importantly, someone who is most closely associated with the BBC in the public mind, driving a coach and horses through those standards. Now, I think Tim is also probably right to acknowledge that the guidelines as they stand are still ambiguous, even though they're the guidelines that he commissioned and signed off on himself. So it's right that they're looked at again, but I'm not at all convinced that the relationship with Gary Lineker is going to survive in the long term. If you look at some of the things he's tweeted even since this row, they seem pretty close to the line, if not over the line to me. And I'm not quite sure how this is going to get resolved in the longer term. And it may be that if Gary, as he's perfectly entitled to do, feels that in the longer term, his freedom to tweet what he likes, about what he likes, whenever he likes, is the most important thing to him. That may just not be compatible with continuing to work for the BBC. And I still think that's a possible outcome of the review and the sort of Um, uneasy truce if you like that's been declared hopefully for the rest of the football season but before that two years before that put take Gary Lineker aside the belief exists in the Conservative Party and in the government and you could say judging by his statements by the chairman whose own impartiality has been questioned and the director general that they've felt not that impartiality was central to the BBC's coverage, yes, obviously, but that the BBC had, quote, a problem with impartiality. Do you think two, three years ago it had a problem with impartiality? And when you were editor of programmes like the Today programme, did you feel there was a problem with impartiality? 
I felt, of course, I felt that there were occasions when we breached impartiality, but I felt that it was they were kind of individual episodes rather than systemic, and that they weren't systemic in a particular direction. I think the BBC's been right to examine individual issues about its coverage. So it, it re- just recently completed a review of its business and economics coverage, for example, which looked really carefully and in some detail about what it really means to be impartial in terms of how you cover taxation, the economy, economic growth, and so on. My experience leading programmes at the BBC was people were very, very careful to make sure that both in their live interviewing and in other aspects of their work, that they stuck to being as impartial as they could. But it's no secret if you particularly if you consume a lot of social media to see that the kind of consensus around the BBC's impartiality is breaking down both on the left and the right and on questions not to do with party politics at all. And I think that's one of the really great risks for the BBC, which to be fair to him, Tim acknowledged when he became Director General, which is that if you like that what I would call the centrist dad brigade, you know, the kind of groups of people who traditionally really defended the BBC are in some senses really turning into some of the BBC's strongest critics through perceptions of its inability to maintain impartiality. And that's a big threat for the BBC's long-term survival. And it does need to continue to find ways to to show that it's engaging with this issue and to show that it's, com- you know, that it's complying with its own guidelines where they've been set. So, yeah, it's a big risk into the future. We've talked to uh, Jamie Angus about the financial difficulties of the BBC and so on. Does this lead you to think that the licence fee is in its last stages? And uh, if so, what will or should replace it? Everyone can agree that the licence fee is the worst possible option apart from all the other ones. And actually, that's why I believe it's going to survive into another cycle. But I think the big question for the BBC is how can it find a way to allow people who want to support the BBC to pay a premium for some kind of premium service without undermining the integrity of the sort of basic licence fee service? And I made a few ideas and a speech about that towards the end of last year and tried to think of a way where you have a basic license fee possibly less than it is now but you have an enhanced license fee that allows audience who who sign into iplayer and sign into the bbc's digital services to pay a significant voluntary premium on the license fee in order to get personalized services and access to things like britbox that they would actually value and whether that could raise the amount of money that the BBC takes from the licence fee in the UK while also raising its commercial returns outside the UK. That feels to me like the kind of system and the kind of new thinking that the BBC needs to look at for the next charter because I think the the, the traditional model, which is just to continue to argue for a higher and higher licence fee in the teeth of a lot of opposition, is beginning to run out of road. And if you keep cutting in things like BBC Singers and so on, your natural supporters, if they don't turn against you, may go silent. Well, I think that's the big risk. Look, a a view has taken hold at the top of the BBC in the last couple of years that people's propensity to pay the licence fee is based heavily on how much they use iPlayer and the BBC's video on demand services. And actually, that's factually true, or rather that's what they say when you ask them. And I think decisions are being taken as a result of that, which are cutting some of the most important things that the BBC does that only the BBC can do and striking the right balance between the BBC having enough money to invest in premium drama and natural history and uh, these these very expensive programmes that it makes so well and maintaining 
essential public service services like the BBC orchestras, the BBC singers, uh, BBC Arabic radio. These are really difficult decisions, and I'm glad I don't have to take them. But I think there is a risk that if you try and protect at all costs the BBC's video-on-demand product, you end up cutting some of the things which don't fit into that category, which most clearly define what the BBC is for. The BBC should not always be a market failure service. It shouldn't just do things that are only enjoyed by minority audiences. But there are some things that it does which are absolutely essential lifeline services or uh, services like the BBC Classical Music Services, which the market will not provide. And so withdrawing from those areas is a very, very difficult decision for the BBC. And you clearly think the wrong decision because a lot of people see the BBC being very well run in business terms, preparing for a future with a licence fee, but without a fresh vision of what public service broadcasting is for the next, well, decade or so, that it needs to articulate that vision. Or if it doesn't, its natural supporters will, if not go into opposition, will, as I say, remain silent. I think the risk is... And I, and I I completely accept that these are very, very difficult balances, judgments to make. But I think the risk is that if you continue to chase competing with Netflix and Amazon Video and other and Disney Plus and other streaming services on video on demand, VOD as the sort of primary thing that you do, it is a battle that you are inevitably going to lose because they are so vastly better resourced than the BBC. And if in pursuing that aim, you end up losing some of the things that are absolutely critical to the BBC's essence, to why it exists, why it does the things that nobody else can do, you end up losing support for the BBC. So that is the incredibly difficult judgment that Tim and his colleagues are having to take under the very constrained funding pressures that they are under and frankly Roger I don't envy them having to take those decisions right now. Well Jamie Angus thank you very much for talking to us but one last thing really I mean you've obviously got the BBC in, in you like a you know running through you like a stick of Blackpool rock as we say um, we may leave but we can't leave will you ever go back to the BBC? I think that's extremely unlikely. No I'm really really happy here and actually this is as you said in your initial question, Roger, this is a part of the world which is making enormous investments into news media in particular, not just in Al Arabiya actually, but right across the industry and currently currently working in, in Dubai and the UAE, but also on occasions in Riyadh. And the amount of investment going into new news media projects in the in those two countries, just those two countries, is absolutely mind-boggling. And it's good because it, it reflects a real, real interest in, in audiences in the region in new services, particularly digital news, you know, social media programming and other digital platforms, but actually also linear television, and as we've been discussing, linear radio, where there are still big audiences and growing audiences in here. here. So it's a really interesting part part of the world to be in um, and I'm really enjoying learning firstly learning Arabic it's very bad but it's early days yet but also just like really thinking about how the world looks from from this region and it's it's fascinating and a challenge every day well Jimmy Angus good luck and thank you very much for talking to us thank you for having me well that's all for this week if you want to keep our podcast ad free please do support us for this month it's only 40p per episode I hope we're worth that. Uh, you can do it easily using the link on our website and in the description of this programme on your podcast platform.
And if you would like to put a face to my voice, and I'm not sure that's advisable, um, I will be participating in a panel discussion at the Media Democracy Festival at Birkbeck University in London this Saturday, the 25th of March. Otherwise, you can get in touch with interview ideas and questions on Twitter by using at Roger or on Mastodon using at RogerBolton at mastodonapp.uk. Or, of course, you can send an email to roger at rogerboltonsbewatch.com. This podcast was presented by me, Roger Bolton, and it was produced by Kate Dixon. The sound was by Clifton Bank Studios, and special thanks to Quinn Genty. It was a good egg production. Until next week, goodbye.